Hi, and welcome to Open Mic Podcast. Today is a very special episode and a special day. This is our 100th episode. I started this endeavor about a year and a half ago because podcasts were becoming popular and I thought it would be a great way to communicate with an audience that I didn't even have direct to our community. And it's been exactly that. We never imagined when we started Open Mic that by the 100th episode, we would be named a top 10 podcast to watch and have over 3 million views. But we are proud and humbled by the support we have received from loyal viewers and listeners like you. At the end of this episode, we have a very special announcement you will not want to miss. So as they say, stay tuned. But right now, let's bring in our special 100th episode guests. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Well, first, let me start out by saying thank you for everyone being here. It's uh, it's a trip down memory lane, seeing all your faces, Julie and Aaron and Kenny and Bill and, and Kevin Dietz, um, you know, celebrating our 100th episode. I didn't think we would get here. Uh, when I started the podcast, it was just kind of out of fun and I wanted to learn and I wanted to do something because podcasts were all the rage. I never thought we'd get to 100 podcasts. Um, the fact that you guys are here to help me celebrate 100 is very meaningful to me. The fact that my producers just told me that we're over 3 million downloads and listens, that's rare. And I think that, you know, when I started this podcast, we didn't know which direction fully it was going to go. And when I first met Aaron Salter, episode 32, and Aaron told me his story, I remember, I remember the emotions, I remember the sadness, I remember the shock you know, being a lawyer 28 years handling only civil cases, that this was happening in our justice system was outrageous to me. And then meeting Kenny and Julie and, and several others, it really did affect me. It really did change me. And at the end of this podcast, I'm going to make an announcement. I'm going to tell you guys something that I haven't told many people, um, you know, that, that, that all of your sharing and courage and love that you've shown me and, and the fact that we are now friends and we talk and we have lunch and we text each other and we help each other is has changed my life for the better. And I appreciate that. And it's, it's, it's meaningful to me. And, and the fact that it's only been a year and a half that I didn't think this was coming. I didn't, I, I didn't know it's, it's amazing that at my age, we're still learning things and that I'm still growing. And as an attorney to learn things about the law that you didn't know um, and to admit it, I think it's pretty cool. So 
And I thank Kevin Dietz for helping, you know, introduce me to this stuff because I, I it was probably your idea to have Aaron on and uh, introducing me to these amazing people has, has changed my life. And to be quite honest, it's changed my family's life because I have three daughters, two of them, in co- two of them in co- are in college. They are watching our episodes. Um, they were both social work, social work education majors and now they're talking to me about social justice classes. They're talking to me about law school. And I think it's because of the three of you and Bill and, and others. And that's, I wasn't even planning on talking about that, but that's true. I mean, my, my, I was sitting with my freshman last night looking at her classes and she was looking at social justice and criminal reform and classes like that at her college. And it's like, wow, you know, it's, it's, it's educating people. Um, it's, it's hard to turn away. It's hard to not want to learn more and hear more. So saying all that, I'm going to just start with Aaron and Aaron, your story is amazing, heartbreaking, scary that it could happen to such a nice young man who was, you know, won a partial college scholarship on his way to Arkansas. Um, and, and the fact that this happened to you, I, I'd like you to tell our listeners and viewers who maybe didn't see episode 32, um, a little bit about what happened to you starting in 2003. Okay. Um, 2003, uh, August the 3rd, um, I witnessed my cousin, you know, being shot real bad. Um, it was a drug deal, basically gone bad because I came home from college, you know, um, with no funds. I came home with no funds and that's the only thing that was available to me at that time. I don't know if people really remember like in 2003 what was going on we had like the lowest um unemployment rate ever um so all the jobs that i really looked for they really wasn't trying to hire like part-time college students or short-term basically workers so i did roofing i did worked at mcdonald's i did various jobs but you know none of them was where i could have saved money up so i started going with my cousin um, that was basically always in the street. And he was selling drugs at that time. I thought I could make some fast money and go back to school. Um, and it didn't work like that. Uh, he wound up having a bad drug deal with one of his friends um, that they had an altercation about a month prior where it caused him to get shot 12 times. And I was right there with him. Um, and, you know, at the time, I just flee. You know, I'm playing football. I'm not trying to get into none of that. I'm just trying to make some extra money to take something off my mother. Um, but in the process, that's what happened. And after that, my cousin uh, survived. I was in intensive care, but he survived. And the guy that actually shot him three days later when he committed another crime, which I was mistaken, identified for it all. Uh, so that was the big deal with that. Um, so you, I had so you a, were arrested. You were at where were you when you were arrested? You were at your uh, a family member's house. Yes, I was at a. I wasn't arrested at the family member's house, but at the time of the crime, like I was at a family member's house right. because of everything that happened to my cousin. Right. You had multiple alibi witnesses. Absolutely. I had my whole family knew, and it was like a thing. Like okay, just go to the west side type of thing and just lay low till we figure out some of the stuff that's going on. So they basically all knew where I was at. And and tell a story about the shock. You were arrested for this crime that you clearly didn't commit. 
Right. Yeah. So I was arrested. I was um, arrested for selling um, intent to sell crack cocaine under 50 grams because I had some drugs that was left over uh, from when I was with my cousin. And when I flee, you know, I tried to sell them, you know, and I wind up getting caught like maybe like three in the morning on Mac and Van Dyke. So I went in for the dope charge and they wind up, you know, trying to give me additional charge on first degree murder. So they actually um, had a writ serve and they um, ridded me out to 1300 Bovian um, where I met this detective named Investigator Austin. Um, Investigator Austin, he seemed like um, he didn't care about what was going on. Like he basically already knew what happened in this case he said i investigated some stuff in the neighborhood um i don't know how you can investigate nothing in the neighborhood on me because i'm not from that neighborhood for one um of course um, i was in college um so he didn't see me as a kid that's always got in trouble because that wasn't me that wasn't the life that i was leading um and you know the rest and and you maintained your innocence for that murder from the very beginning uh, from the very beginning, um, a female named Joanne Thomas, um, which was the deceased in my case, that was his sister. So she actually stood up. She actually stood up um, during, like you know, when the family is able to talk to the to the um, defendant, and they actually say some words or whatever. Her words was that she knew that I didn't kill her brother. And she said she knew who killed her brother was a guy named E. You know, and it's like the the, the everybody, they should have been stepping up to be like, well, okay, I knew it was hoes in this case. I knew it was this and I knew it was that. Like that testimony right there is so powerful that there's no way that I should have still went to prison, man. Like, that should have been a wake-up call for somebody somewhere to be like, okay, well, maybe we rushed this this guy's, you know, um, trial, man. But they didn't do it. And then you end up in prison. Did you realize at some point, wow, innocent people end up in prison? How this happens in real life? No, actually, I thought I was the only one that it happened to. You know, I went through a whole battle with God um, behind this because I just didn't see how a guy could sell drugs and wind up being in prison for for the rest of his natural life, like at the age of 21. Like I didn't believe that at 21, my life can be gone. And I was, you know, looking at going to the NFL and everything, man. So that's just a big turn right there. What was the key to finally getting out? What was, what, what was the turning point? Oh uh, man, it was, the turning point was when my, when my, um, federal defender um, team actually submitted an application to the conviction integrity unit. And that's what happened. And when they did that, it's like, man, I was out within like 30 to 60 days, man. And refresh our memories. What what was the smoking gun that, that they, the conviction integrity unit hung their hat on to finally allow you out? I believe the smoking gun, what they really could hold their hat on is like um, the file. You know, like a lot of times, like defense attorneys, they're not able to go into an actual evidence room or anything like that and look for a file. 
Whereas the conviction integrity unit is within the prosecutor's office. They can just go down there and get it. You know what I mean? And when they went to try to go get my file, it had like a sticky note on it that said, do not copy. And this was like my single mug shot that they was withholding from me and that was supposed to be marked in evidence. See, it's, now I'm learning, man, that, you know, I'm out here and I'm talking to people that actually investigated my crime. I'm learning that um, it was a lot of stuff that happened that was, you know, blankly, man, and just led towards them trying to cover up, man, or basically pin a murder on me, man. So what was it about the mugshot that they didn't want you to, why didn't they want you to have that? Um, because for one, my whole claim was suggestive identification. So that's the that's what they used to identify me. A guy used my mugshot with my height, weight, all this stuff on there as a reason to ID me, man. That's but crazy. Didn't your, didn't your height and weight not add up to a witness? Weren't, weren't there witness identifications that, that had uh, skinnier and, and shorter? Right. The guy initially gave the description of a guy named Rob, 5'7", 150 pounds to 170. And then he said, if I'm not mistaken, he said um, another guy six foot thin. Thin. Yeah. Well, you're not 5'7", 150. That's me. You're, you're, you're a lot bigger and taller than me. So the identification didn't match. There was lots of things in your case that didn't add up. And if anybody's uh, interested in hearing all of the, the details, episode 32, we go into it for well over an hour. Um, and Kevin, is there any other facts in this? I mean, I remember that you, that you were in prison with the man who actually committed the crime. Is that true? Absolutely. I was in the prison with him. Um, at the time, I kind of, I didn't, I didn't really hate this guy because I'm like, it's not his fault that the process, that the police targeted me. Like he did a crime and got away with it. Like, how can I be mad at this guy? You know? So I started asking cause I was in prison asking and trying to solve my own stuff. And I was asking guys basically like that was from that particular neighborhood. Like, what did they know about the crime? Did they know this person that got shot? What they know about him? You know, digging into stuff because I had to work hand in hand with the federal defender's office. Did I had to feed them information because they like what what you what else can you find to help help yourself? Right. Did did you get this man to to help you and eventually write you a letter? <coughs> the guy that actually committed the yeah. crime. Didn't you get him to do something for you? No, I didn't get him to do nothing. He did everything on his own free will. Okay. What did he do? Um, the Tell thing, us what the he thing did. with him though, he wrote. He said he wrote a letter to my attorney saying that he would basically be able to help me if I could sign some type of contract with him um, for when I get compensated, he, you know, for a statement. But basically, he just ruled his stuff like you're not even credible now. You just was basically putting your testimony for, for hire, man. That's not even credible. So we couldn't even use him if we wanted to. You know, but he reached out to my attorney and everything organically. Like, you know, it didn't take no pushing from me or none of that. I mean, it's a guy's soul you're talking about, man. Like a guy see me playing football, doing all this stuff, and then you see me in there for natural life for a crime that you actually committed. Like, come on, man. Everybody, like, people cold-hearted, but it's certain things that's beyond cold heart he said he said you he knew you didn't do it and the sister of the victim said he they knew you didn't do no, it. no he actually and, did the crime i'm not saying that he knew i didn't do it like he actually did the crime 
and he was trying to actually try to you know, work his way into my lawsuit or something, you know. He wanted some money. Yeah, he wanted some money. And man. you got some money. Yeah. Because because of all the, the crookedness that went on, because of the 15 years you spent behind bars, we're not even, we haven't even mentioned what a lousy defense attorney you had during your, your trial. Um, but the the fact that you got out and you, you, you got some money, a lot of money, which was great and, and well-deserved, and then the thing that always amazes me with, with, the, with people who spend many years behind bars is that you came back and all you wanted to do was help other people. And you bought a house to, to, to put up people who are getting out of prison who don't have anywhere to go. Uh, because of Kenny and you, uh, I learned one of the biggest things that I think I've learned over the last year and a half is that if you're paroled in Michigan, for a crime you committed, you have all these wonderful benefits to you. Uh, you get money, you get uh, housing help, you get job help, you get medical, you get lots of things. But if you're exonerated for a crime you didn't commit, you get nothing. And you saw, and I know Kenny works hard on this, um, but you saw a, a void in this system and you bought, you used your hard-earned money that you got after your lawsuit and you bought a house so you could put people up. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, the house we got is called Aunt Bobby's House. I named this after my grandmother because she taught me so much growing up. She was like the village mother, you know, and she just take everybody in. She made sure everybody gets signed up for the right assistance they need so they can go out and be on their own. And it, it wasn't nothing wrong with that system. Like, we can work that same system right now. Yep, helping people. Yeah, and I and I thought that was beautiful. I, I saw pictures of the house. Um, I was going to come see the house, and then and then COVID hit. And you're also uh, a lot of us are wearing or have these pins that I'm showing to the camera. Innocence maintained, better not bitter. Can you tell our listeners and viewers what this is? What that is is that's a badge um, for innocence maintained and everybody that support us. And it's just letting them know that we on the right team of this wrongful conviction, man. Like we really fighting and we doing what we say we gonna do. And tell us about the app that you are creating mm -hmm. for exonerees. Um, right now we've got a work performance app that we um, purchased through Build Fire, which uh, they actually helping us um, to create this resource app. Uh, What's it gonna do? How's it gonna help? people who were wrongfully convicted? So a lot of times, like for me and a lot of people in our organization, um, we usually get calls from people and that we might not be doing certain jobs because we're trying to set up a network whereas everybody specialized in something. So we all not stumping over everybody's feet. So what this actually does is it actually links everybody directly to the help they need, whether it's for the families that's looking for help, whether it's for a Zonary just came home, need his ID and everything, whether it's for a guy that's just been out and maybe say he messed his money up, man. You know, we gotta be able to help everybody equally. Love it. I love it I and good luck with that app. And you and I have been talking lots about it and that's. I think that's going to happen really soon for you. We're going to do the reveal on August the 15th, man. Okay. We're going to rent out the Yacht Club, and we're throwing a Zonary Awards. 
please invite me. So that's my let me, birthday. Let me help sponsor. That's that, my birthday. That's your birthday? So I'm letting y'all know that's my birthday. Right. And we have an Zionary Awards, and we're going to show everybody how, you know, and what's different between a Zionary, you know, running things and being able to look out for his brothers, rather it's somebody else that been experienced that. Well, we're coming. All of us are coming. Yeah. Save us a table. That's awesome. All right. More in a little bit. We're going to turn to Julie Balmer, who's sitting to your right. Julie Balmer, episode 77 on the Open Mic Show. Hi, Julie. Thanks for being here. Hello. So Julie has another really, really heartbreaking story. Um, she was arrested for doing the right thing, seeking medical help for her, her, for her sick baby nephew. Um, she was convicted with no evidence of any abuse, just two doctors testifying about shaken baby syndrome, which we now know is junk science. It's such junk science that they're trying to change the name to abusive head trauma, which they actually did change the name to. Um, you had a terrible defense attorney not, you know, presenting any evidence in your first trial, uh, to help you. Um, and you had the first case at the, that the Michigan Innocence Clinic in Ann Arbor took that did not involve DNA evidence. So you are kind of a, a famous person up there. And uh, um, I want you to tell us a little bit, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people have listened to episode 77. I'll never forget it. Um, but tell us a little bit about your story and um, for the people who have not heard or seen it. Uh Basically, um, uh, my younger sister, uh, she, she uh, ended up getting pregnant. It was an unplanned pregnancy. And so uh, with the support of my family, I chose to do an in-family adoption. And uh, after Philip was born, uh, he was hospitalized in the neonatal intensive care unit uh, for about uh, a week with issues. So we knew that there was going to be uh, some form of complications. We didn't know the, the extent of it. Um, when he was five weeks old, he uh, basically uh, uh, had a medical breakdown, if you will, um, because he completely stopped eating, and uh, he, uh, he just became very lethargic. So, of course, I called his pediatrician, and, and uh, by direction of his pediatrician, I took him into the ER, uh, this was in Macomb County. Uh, Macomb County transferred him down to Children's Hospital, uh, where 24 hours later, um, uh, he was uh, undergoing uh, brain surgery to, to relieve pressure in his brain. Uh, his brain had swollen. Um, 24 hours after that, <clears throat> I was... Uh, invited into the sheriff's department in Macomb County to interview. And at that point, I, was, uh, I, I, I realized that I was a, a suspect for um, child abuse. And so uh, immediately, uh, my family and I started our defense. Uh, initially, we went back to the birth, which was traumatic. And we were, um, my sister had been given two doses of Pitocin. And so we were uh, thinking that, you know, there was there was some definite uh, issues during the the, the birth. Um, however, uh, several months later, uh, I was formally charged with child abuse, first degree, 
And uh, 18 months later, um, I was convicted and sentenced to 15 years. And you've actually, tell us what, you, you had two trials. So what happened after your first conviction? I immediately began the appeal process uh, after I exhausted all of my appeals uh, by the grace of God. Ironically, that same year in 2009, U of M opened up the uh, non-DNA innocence uh, clinic, and I uh, was able to uh, get my, my case um, heard. And you had a second trial. Yes, and so I was granted a second trial where I had several doctors who testified on my behalf that weren't available to me during my first trial uh, that, that, that clearly stated that there was no crime committed at all, uh, simply that, well, it's not simply, but uh, unfortunately that uh, my, my nephew had suffered a, a form of childhood stroke, venous sinus thrombosis. And what did the jury do in that case? I was, um, I was acquitted and I was exonerated completely. Which is absolutely fabulous. Um, I know the, the people up at U of M, you know, worked really hard for you. And, and like you said, I mean, and, and like I said earlier that you were the first, um, you know, case that they took, you know, and, and since that time, there's been a ton of SBS cases, shaken baby syndrome cases that have been overturned across this entire country. You know, you were, you were one of the first in the country um, and how, how many, how long were you in prison? Uh, four and a half years. But well, one <clears throat> day is too long, isn't it, gentlemen? <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, it's just, it's, and it, it, it was shocking that they even, you know, tried it a second time. And, um, you know, thank God you had good attorneys uh, for, after the second trial. And how many, how long have you been out now, Julie? Um, uh, uh, 10 years. And give us an update on your life. How are, what are you doing these days? Oh, well, I've, I've nestled myself into a nice little community uh, where I um, uh, work as a realtor and uh, to, uh, to go on and, and, and fill, fill some voids and also to uh, give my part back. I, I, I indulge in several uh, service clubs and do a lot of volunteer work. It's uh, amazing. It's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing your story again with us today. Episode 77 on Open Mic for all the details on Julie Bomber's case. Um, and last but not least, Kenny Wanenko. Um, one of the craziest stories... I think anybody could ever hear. We did two episodes, 45 and 50. I think we have over four hours. Um, it, it, it's, it's, you know, as I'm, as I'm interviewing more people, as I'm reading more, as I'm watching movies like um, Just Mercy, as I'm, you know, getting myself into this world, your story almost checks all the boxes of what could go wrong in one of these types of cases, um, you know, starting with, you know, likely dirty cops, uh, a jailhouse snitch, uh, a corrupt prosecutor, a bad judge, um, and on and on. And that's probably why Netflix did a, did a whole series or did a whole show 
on you. That's why you probably have this fabulous book that your friend Bob wrote, Deliberate Injustice, Deliberate Injustice which I read, which is really good. Um, Kenny, you've, you've introduced me to you know people up at the Michigan Innocence Clinic and Bill Proctor and others. I call you a, a good friend. And um, your story, I think about all the time, as I do with all the stories, you're also, you, you're wearing your innocenceproject.org shirt, um, which you'll tell us about. But for the viewers who have not seen our four plus hours on you, why don't you give us a couple minutes on, on what happened to you? Well, um, first of all, Mike, thank you for the kind words. It's uh, always a pleasure being with you and with my fellow exonerees and my good friend, Bill Proctor. Um, what happened to me, unfortunately, I was arrested in, in uh, 1994 and charged with 10 weeks after the crime happened. The crime happened on uh, April the 30th. I was arrested on J July 14th, 10 weeks after this rape happened, okay? And when the, at the time the rape happened, it was a big story in the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News, Macomb Daily, our local paper. And I remember reading about the rape, and I, I was thinking to myself, that, you know, no woman should have to go through that. No way. And um, as it turned out, July 14th, 10 weeks later, I was arrested and charged with 15 counts of CSC1, one count of B&E, one count of armed robbery. But the, the story is, uh, <laughs> the way the story started was um, back in, I managed a pair of bowling centers in Macomb County at the time. That's what I was doing for a living. I'd worked for GM for 15 years prior to that. And um, in February of that year, um, it was a Friday night, we had a, a family night at the bowling center. We were jam-packed, okay? So I was sitting in my office uh, put, putting together a liquor order and Terry, the counter man, came up to me. I'm sorry, Kelly, one of my waitresses, came up to me, and she said, "Kenny, there's a guy on, on lane 12 that's uh, drunk, and he, she thought he was gonna get in a fight with the people on, on with family on lane 11. This guy was, was by himself, okay? So I said, okay, and I did what I normally do. If one of my employees tell me there's a problem, I just go out and check it out because I'm looking at it myself to make sure everything is legit." So I came out from my office. I was leaning against the counter, and I was watching this guy on lane 12. And uh, he was arguing with the father on lane 11. And I saw him. Oh, Kelly told me that she, um, he was drunk, and he was drinking a cans of Miller Lite. Okay. So out of his own bag. Out of his own bag. He had two bowling two bowling bags. One bag had two bowling balls in it. The other bag had. 12 cans of Miller Lite, okay? So I went, I told Terry, I said, watch my back. I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down and uh, talk to this guy. You know, I'm going to tell him he's going to have to leave. So I went down and uh, I said, you know, I said what his name was. He said, my name is John. I said, uh, John, I said, do these two bowling bags belong to you? He said, yes, they do. What's the problem? And who are you? I said, my name is Kenny. You know, I'm the general manager of the, this place. I said, do you mind if I look in the uh, in your bags? No, go ahead. So I opened up one bag, and sure, you know, sure enough, there were there were eleven cans of now built a Miller Lite in a, in a bag. And I told him, I said, you know, John, and he was wearing a pair of rental shoes. I said, do me a favor, okay? I said, I hate to argue with anybody. Said, do me a favor, take your shoes off, 
you know, go take him back to the counter, get your get your deposit back. You're gonna have to leave. And I went to grab the the um, bowling bag with the beer. I was gonna take it with me back to the office. He said, "Where are you going with that?" You know, he said, "That's my stuff." I said, "No, that's not your stuff, Bill, oh, oh, John." And he said, "I bought that stuff here, sir." And I said, "No, I know you didn't, and don't lie to me because I know I know that you're lying." He said, "I'm not lying." He said, then he asked me, he said, "Why do you think I'm lying?" And I said, "Because we only sell the beer that we sell. We sell in bottles. We don't sell any canned beer at all." So I know that you're lying to me. So I grabbed the bag and I went back in the office and uh, uh, sat down next next to me and went back to work on on the liquor order. And uh, about ten minutes later, this guy comes back in the office and uh, he says, "I want my I want my beer back." I says, "I'm sorry, John." I says, "You come and see me tomorrow, okay?" He's not I, he's not leaving without his beer. So, and I was, at this point, I was getting upset. I said, look, John, I, said, I hate to argue with people. I'm right in the middle of a, putting an order together. I said, you, you're leaving. Trust me, you're leaving. One way or another, you're going to leave. And he said, uh, no, he's not. And I said, and he's not going to leave, and I can't make him leave. And uh, I said, well, you're wrong about that, uh, John. I said, but just out of curiosity, you want to tell me why you think, you, can, you know, I can't make you leave? And he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out a Clinton Township police officer badge from Clinton Township Police. And I told him, I said, look, John, I said, number one, I don't know if that badge is real or not. And if it is real, you should know better as a police officer that you can't bring alcohol into a business that has a, a liquor license because you're jeopardizing the license, you know, my living. And uh, he said, well, no, he's not leaving until the um, he takes the bag. And he went to grab for it, okay? So when he, he did that, um, I got him in a headlock and I started to drag him outside because I was, I was going to take him outside and throw him in a parking lot. And as I, I was dragging him uh, towards the park, parking lot, he had the bowling bag with his two bowling balls in it in his, in his right hand. And as I got to the double glass doors uh, going out to the parking lot, he swung the bag and he shattered the glass in both doors. So. I dragged him outside, threw him on, a, on the ground, and I, and I told him, come back and see me tomorrow. Well, about 20 minutes after that, um, I went back in my office, and Terry, the counter man, came into my office and said, Kenny, there's two uniformed police officers here who want to talk to you. I said, well, send them in, you know. So they came in, and they asked me if I was, uh, my name was Kenny. I said, yes, it was, and they asked my last name, and I told them, and, um, um, one of the cops said uh, he, they understood that uh, I had a problem with a customer about a half hour ago. I said, I didn't have any problem with anybody. And his, his partner said, well, I noticed that one of your porters is sweeping up the uh, broken glass, you know, uh, in your vestibule. I said, that's right. I said, uh, and he, the first cop said, well, I thought you said you didn't have a problem. I said, I didn't have a problem. The gentleman that I threw out had a problem because he brought beer into my place. He didn't want to, he didn't want to leave, and I tried to be as nice as I could to him, so I threw him out. And uh, the cop says, well, did, you know that guy was a cop? And I said, well, he, he showed me, he did show me a, a badge that, you know, from Clinton Township Police, but I didn't know if it was real or not. And I told him, if it was real, that he should know better that you can't bring alcohol into my establishment. So his partner says, oh, is your liquor license up to date? 
I said, yes, it is. He said, where's it at? And I said, it's posted on our wall behind a bar where it's supposed to be, according to the law. And he said, um, do you mind if I take a look at it? I said, no. I said, I'll, as a matter of fact, I'll go with you. So make a long story short, he tried to walk behind the bar to check out the license. And I, I said, I have one rule here. All people who behind the bar are the bartenders on duty, the porters who restock the cabinets, or myself. Those are the rules, okay? And his partner said, you know, uh, Kenny, he said, you seem like a real smartass. I said, I'm not a smartass. That's the way we run things here, okay? So um, they talked for a few more minutes. They were walking around, and they came back to see me, and they said, okay, Kenny, we'll see you in about, uh, we'll see you five or six months down the road. We'll come and, you know, make sure you're okay. And I said, was that is that some kind of a threat? And his partner said, we don't make threats, we keep promises. So they left and... Fast forward, so just fast yeah. forward. Uh, okay. So, so it's, a, it's a good story and, and it, it leads up to why you think you were behind yeah, that's, that's the, that's bars the, for so many years. So what was the next encounter with the Clinton so Township Police? I get to July 14th, I'm at home in bed. How many weeks, late, months later is this? It's 10 weeks after the crime itself, okay? Well, hold on, uh, hold on, hold on. The, but when in relation, how long after the bullying oh, incident? Oh, um, about five and a half months okay. after this incident. So there was the a crime, line. there was a rape in Clinton Township. On April 30th. Ten weeks later. I'm at home in bed, and about 8.30 in the morning, there's a knock on my front door, and I get up and open the door, and there's a young woman standing on my porch wearing a business suit. And I opened the door up, and I said, can I help you? And she said, is your name Kenny? I said, yes, it is. What can I do for you? Well, when I said my name was Kenny, she moved on the side. Four plane cops rushed me, they threw me on the floor of my living room. They handcuffed me behind my back, and they told me that I was going to be taken down to the Macomb County Jail to be placed in a lineup because, I, according to them, they had received an anonymous phone call that Ken Wanemko from Kingswood Lanes looks like this composite that was issued in a paper for the, someone who committed a rape back in April. And uh, I told, uh, as it turned out, this lady turned out to be a detective, a female detective. And I told her and, and the four cops that threw me on the ground, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. You're making a big mistake. So I went, they took me down to the Macomb County Jail, and I had uh, the opportunity to meet uh, the two detectives, Detective Osten and Detective Marlette. And now I don't refer to them as detectives. I re after what we proved they did, I, I call them defectives. Not detectives, okay? So um, they told me that I was going to be placed in a lineup because I was uh, suspected of this being this guilt, guilt, uh, committing this rape. And uh, I said, you know, I, I, you're making a big mistake. I want to call an attorney. And, uh, and I, I had no prior experience with the law before. And I said, I, I told Detective Oston I wanted to call an attorney. And he told me that... Um, he was sorry, but he's not going to allow me to call an attorney. However, he would have one that would be in the, in the viewing room with the victim. Okay. I said, uh, well, you know, I don't know that much about the law back then. I didn't. I know now. I know criminal law now because I studied every day for almost 10 years and I was locked up. And uh, he said that he took, I, I said, I want to call an attorney again. And he says, Wanamco, one way or another, your ass is going in that lineup quote, unquote. So they put me in a lineup with five other, five other gentlemen. All five guys had black hair. Everyone had a mustache. I've never had a mustache in my life. Um, we had to say, uh, oh, and they put me on a, uh, 
make me stand on a riser, like a three-inch high riser, okay? And we had to say a line for the victim to hear. It was, what time does your husband come home? Because apparently, according to the victim's statement, this, that's what this guy told her. And as it turned out, her husband uh, was in Myrtle Beach golfing for eight days, so he wasn't in town during the time of the rape. So the lineup is over, and uh, one of the jail officers that opened up the door, and I approached him, I said, can I please speak to that attorney who Austin told me he was in the, you know, being in the lineup room? And he said, uh, I'm sorry, he already left the building. I said, how is that possible? You just opened the door five seconds ago, and uh, you know, I want to I talk to him. Where during that conversation, Austin was coming down the hall, coming towards me, and I had made the same request for him. Can I please talk to that attorney, okay? He says, Kenny, everything is okay, you can go home. And they release me. So I'm thinking now everything's, you know, just a mistake. So I called my dad at the time to come and pick me up. He was 76 years old at the time. And when he came to the, to the jail to pick me up, he asked me what was going on, and I told him just what the same story I just told you. And um, so we go back into, go back to my house. I wanted to take a shower at this point because I was sitting in the county jail for about five hours. I could just feel my skin crawl. So as we pull in my driveway, um, there was an unmarked car sitting in front of my home. And then my dad and I got out to walk in my house. Then there was a, a guy that got out of the police car. As it turned out, his name was, turned out to be Lieutenant Al Ernst. He was the, the uh, in charge of the whole case. So I'm walking up to the, put the key in my door, and this guy comes up to me. He's plain clothes. And he says, why don't go? Where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going inside my house to take a shower. I feel filthy. And he says, uh, he can't allow me to go in my home because he was waiting for a search warrant. And I said, look, I own this home. I've done nothing wrong. You're more than welcome to come inside with me. But I'm, you know, I'm going to take a shower. And I went to put my key in the door, and he pulled his pistol out and pointed it at my head. And he said, well, I'm going to step away from the door. And I thought, my dad started crying. He, he, my dad thought he was going to shoot me. So we got back in the car, went to my mom and dad's house, I took a shower over there and uh, came back to my house about three hours later and the whole house was, looked like a tornado going through it. Um, everything was tossed and turned and they went so far, the police went so far as to break uh, like jars of pepper, pickles and peppers in my fridge. They broke them all on my living, on my kitchen floor. So my dad got upset, I stayed up and uh, I told him go home and I'll stay up and put everything back together. And um, went, next morning, I went to Myers to replace the stuff that the cops had broken. As I pulled in my driveway, the two detectives came in. They pulled behind my rear bumper. And I got out of my car, and I was holding a bag of groceries. And Austin said, well, I'm go put that bag on the ground and put your hands on top of your car. And I said, well, what are you bothering me now for? I haven't done anything wrong. And uh, during that, when he said that, Four marked cars I pulled up. They had two by my lawn and two on my neighbor's lawn. And eight, off, they had two, uh, eight officers got out. And Austin said, when well, I'm going to tell you for the last time, drop that bag and put your hands on top of your car. And when he said it the second time, all the cops, they drew their guns and two of the cops that sawed off shotguns. That's when I thought they really were going to kill me. So I put the bag on the ground, put my hands on top of the car, and I asked them, uh, you know, what, uh, 
what's the problem now? And he told me that I was under arrest for this BE armed robbery and rape because I was identified in a lineup the day before. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I told him, I said, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm not stupid, okay? He says, if someone wanted to identify me, number one, they would have been wrong, but most importantly, if someone identified me, you guys would never let me walk out of the jail. You'd arrest me right on the spot. It's just common sense. So anyhow. So you so you're arrested for the murder on that day. Or not the murder. I apologize. Let me take that back. You were arrested for the rape and the B&E on that day. Uh, the, when they that was, I was arrested on the 14th. I was released and then I re-arrested on the 15th. Yes. But I want to make one point clear about this officer. When I told him, you know, he was making a terrible mistake, um, and he said, you know why I'm going? He said, I'm going to start calling you the million-dollar man. I said, you want to tell me what that's supposed to mean? Because I don't know what you're talking about. And his exact words to me were, quote, unquote, was the one I'm going, by the time I get done fucking with you, it's going to cost you a million dollars to get your ass out of prison, quote, unquote. So um, as you're talking, I'm, now I'm, I'm remembering why we spent so many hours with you because you're, you're a damn good storyteller. And, well, and no, well, I don't mean story as in a made-up story. I mean, you tell this story very well. And for those of you who are intrigued by this story, episodes 45 and 50 have so many twists and turns. This could be a, I know they did one hour with you on Netflix, which I watched, which was actually really good. But you could probably have a five-hour movie about your life. And, you know, the fact that you are, that one of your biggest defenders is the prosecutor that put you away, Carl Marlinga that we had on our show 50, the fact that you are now dear friends with one of the jurors who convicted you, the fact that there are so much uh, DNA that was at the scene that they didn't test, that, that no evidence linked to you, that there were opposite evidence that, that, that was impossible to be you, and on and on and on. For those of you who want to hear more about this, check out episodes 45 and 50. What I want to turn to now, Kenny, is... Um, yourinnocenceproject.org. Tell me what that's about. Well, the Innocence Project is, was responsible for my release. Okay? Um, I've, I was still locked up in prison, and I happened to see uh, Barry Sheck on the Phil Donahue show. Talking, he was working with DNA that would prove someone's guilt or innocence. So I wrote to um, Barry Sheck is out of New York. Um, at the time, Barry was, defend, was working on the O.J. Simpson case. So I decided to write, uh, put together a packet of the facts, but the withheld evidence in my case, the how quick everything went to trial, about the snitch who lied. Um, I wrote to Barry asking for his help. And about five months later, I get a letter back from Barry saying that you know the information I sent him sounded very serious. However, he had a backlog of over 4,000 cases in, in New York. That was the bad news, but the good news was they were going to open up a, a project, innocence project at Cooley Law School in Lansing. And they sent like, it there. And, and you were the first case there. Uh, yeah, Barry sent it to, to the Cooley, and I was I was their first case. And they helped, and they got you out. They got me out, and uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, what is the Innocence Project doing now? Well, they're they're working to free other innocent men and women. Um, I'm on the board of commissioners now. And you told me before we started filming today, you were the 129th person. Is it in Michigan or the country? At the time of my release, I was the second person in Michigan, the uh, 129th in the country. And now this is for a DNA release? Yes. And now in Michigan, we're up to, uh, I think we're just under 130. But nationwide, we went from 129 
as of last week Friday, the number is 2,755. And I want people, that's that's a quantum jump. Oh my God. But it's still, people, uh, please believe me, it's still just a tip of the iceberg. And that's that's why I'm proud to be part of the Innocence Project, the Innocence Clinic, uh, Proving Innocence with Bill Proctor. And because it's there's no more worthy cause in the world than to help and, and, and we're hearing we're hearing about people getting out every week, thank God, which is which is an amazing, amazing thing. I want to turn to Bill Proctor now. Bill Proctor uh, was kind enough to come on open up mic episode fifty one. Um, Bill works tirelessly for wrongfully convicted people to trying to free them. He is so busy. He's helping um, so many people. He's a member of the Michigan Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Um, and he's the founder of Proving Innocence, today runs Seeking Justice, currently hot on the trail of um, whokilledshannonsiders.com. I said it like that on purpose, which, which is an amazing website with lots of videos. But Bill, thank you and welcome to the show today. Thanks, Mike. Tell me how you got involved fighting for the wrongfully convicted. I was lucky enough to have uh, an almost 40-year career in television and uh, was a reporter, anchor, that kind of thing, but uh, um, had a private investigator in 1994 bring me a case out of uh, Port Huron. Uh, This was a strange situation where, in 1986, a college student was murdered shortly after 9 o'clock in the morning on the community college campus in Port Huron. Scott Macklem turned out to be the, uh, the son of the mayor of Croswell. Well, uh, lots of twists and turns brought the police to a fellow named Frederick Thomas Freeman. And Mr. Freeman uh, had the misfortune of essentially uh, dating for a few minutes, like maybe two weeks, uh, the girlfriend slash fiance of the murder victim. Well, the police uh, looked at his uh, general level of misconduct that never uh, indicated something so serious as to felony level, wrote a couple of bad checks, he Uh, drove a motorcycle without a license, that kind of silly things, but just kind of an arrogant, tough guy who thought he was God's gift to women. Bottom line is, they put together a case that, to this day, (laughs) is the most ridiculous presentation you've ever seen in your life that essentially convicted an innocent man. That was in 1986 for the trial. I took on the case 1994-95 and was among the first reporters in the state of Michigan to essentially step out in a big way to present an actual innocence claim. The claim was extremely strong with a jailhouse snitch who got rewarded to make statements about what he heard in a jail cell that Freeman allegedly said. Uh, girls who claimed that he was some sort of a, a ninja master who could uh, levitate himself from one end of the room to another, that kind of thing throwing stars, all this kind of stuff. And the real bottom line was, this was a shotgun murder in broad daylight on the college campus. He, with all of his um, martial arts prowess, could have snapped this neck quietly and walked away with no problem. That didn't happen. This, we strongly believe today, had to do with drugs, Scott Macklem's use of drugs, connection to drug dealers, and bad actors essentially there. What I learned from that case, from a private investigator, is that there are so many elements of a trial that can misrepresent the truth. The fact here is that Frederick Freeman 
was over 400 miles away outside of, um, well, in Rock, Michigan, um, which is outside of, what, what's the, yeah, Escanaba, all right? So he's that far away, and Robert Cleveland, the prosecutor at the time, got to tell this jury or suggest to the jury that he uh, rented a plane, <laughs> flew clandestinely from, from uh, there to Port Huron on a private fee- field, got somebody to drive him to do the murder, got back in a car, went back in a plane and flew back. This is a guy who put, couldn't pay $250 for his rent. Yet, <laughs> in 1986, he hired a plane to go do a murder that he had really no reason to commit. It's that kind of government misconduct that we see in these cases over and over and over. And this person's still sitting in prison today. He's still in prison today. He, too, has a commutation request with the governor. The Conviction Integrity Unit is looking at it as well. But the real bottom line is that over all these years, nothing puts Frederick Thomas Freeman at the scene of the crime. He did not own a weapon of the type that killed Scott Mecklen. And the, the girlfriend connection was kind of blown up by discussion because she was one of many. So, no, he wouldn't have cared that she was going to go with somebody else. The list that you've heard among your guests, the list of the tens of thousands of cases that have been examined by a number of innocence projects around the country have come down to a very comprehensive, constant evaluation of the problem of wrongful conviction in America. Six, seven, maybe eight specific reasons for all of them. Number one on the hit parade, mistaken witness identity. Number two, false confessions. And people don't understand how somebody would sit in front of a police officer and say, yes, I did something that they did not. All kinds of elements come together to force that to happen. False confessions happen, and they happen a lot. Bad forensics. Um, scientists apparently have had to catch up with criminality. And that's what's going on with bad forensics. There are ways that, that uh, doctors and scientists and, and um, uh, medical examiners uh, come to the stand and make statements that are scientifically not only not true, but can't be proven. But they get to sit up there as experts and do that kind of thing. That's bad forensics. Junk science generally. We used to hear and see on television all the time, gee, there was bite mark um, evidence where, oh, gee, we checked the suspect's bite mark and it matched the biting of the neck on the victim over here. It's BS. That's junk science. And there's a whole list of elements for junk science. Perjury is way up there as well because people are forced by police investigators who threaten them to say things that are just not true. Official misconduct is, 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 is just rampant. There are whole police departments that essentially build their reputations on convictions that they never should have had in the first place. And then comes snitches. Um, people, in, yes, people in prison are looking for ways to get the hell out. And so they find a cop who will listen to them, and they will say anything. In the city of Detroit, with that police department, Snitches have put hundreds of people away where there was no evidence, only the snitches statement against somebody who is, in fact, innocent and bad lawyering. Um, 
It is unfortunate that people end up smart enough to pass the bar, but not smart enough to come up with a simple defense for people who are innocent. The list is long. It's difficult, Michael. And yes, the entire country needs to know that this is more than a notion, more than a TV show, more than a television series. These are people whose lives and the lives of their families are ruined by bad work in the criminal justice system. And from all accounts, Bill, you are helping so many people. You're working uh, as a private investigator trying to get people out. Um, I know what good work you do. I've seen it. Um, the, the, new, the new case that you're working on, the one that I mentioned in, in your intro, very compelling. And the fact that you're digging so deep on a case that, like you said, has 50, 60, 70 witnesses, but you know what? It doesn't scare you away, which is so darn impressive that, that you are not giving up, that you're filming and you're finding witnesses and you're digging and you're turning over every rock and that you're finding, uh, um, you're finding these puzzle pieces and making a compelling argument that these two brothers up in uh, Nuego, Michigan, um, are sitting in prison for decades for a crime that they did not commit is Impressive isn't even the right word. I don't even know what the word is. Um, do you want to tell a little bit about that and direct people to that website so they can, so we can let the world know what's happening? This was the horrible murder of a teenager in 1989. Um, July 17th, Shannon Siders uh, essentially turned up missing after kind of driving around and having a beer, having a kind of a, a mobile party with about uh, seven or eight other friends. The Jones brothers, uh, Paul and Matthew, uh, uh, Shannon asked them to take her home that night. She had some sort of an appointment the next day. And so sometime after midnight, sometime between midnight and two, Paul and Matthew Jones took her home. That's the bottom line element of how they were pursued for more than 25 years by rumors and innuendos and people who just didn't like them, who had a whole lot of things to say. And a Michigan State Police cold case squad walked in there in 2011, tossed out the polygraph that Matthew Jones had passed in 1993, cleanly to say, no, I didn't do it. Paul never took one because he had drug problems, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, with 67 witnesses called over 16 days in Nuevo County, and most of those witnesses saying that they heard Paul and Matthew Jones say this incriminating statement or heard that. And by the time it's all over, two people were the foundation of the government's case against them in 2015. Those two people, one of them a prisoner, and the other one the prisoner's girlfriend who got herself a, a, a minister's license to gain access to the entire prison system, they got together with bits and pieces of this case that they got from the inside because there was a civilian investigator insider who had done hundreds of interviews who drove essentially the thought process of the Jones brothers being the only real step, uh, suspects. Bottom line is in 2015, these two innocent men were convicted based on what people said they heard them say. And the people who were the insiders who got the connections, they said that way back 26 years ago, they happened to be 19 and 14 and drove around the forest and saw the fatal assault on Shannon Siders. Number one question on the hit parade, why didn't you teenagers tell the cops that you saw a, a horrible assault going on in the woods? 
And when Shannon Sider's body was finally found, why didn't you say something? But over and over and over again, those questions are never answered. It's a very difficult case. It's a difficult case, but you do a nice job of telling the story. Who killed Shannon Siders, S-I-D-E-R-S dot com. It'll be on our uh, website to, to watch Bill's investigation. And he's working tirelessly to free these two uh, innocent, innocent men. Innocent, innocent, innocent. So, what, what, yes, Kenny. Add something to what, uh, just for the some of the facts, just so you listeners will know. Bill was talking about eyewitness misidentification being a leading leading cause. It is the leading cause of wrongful convictions. And if you look at the facts amongst the exonerees, all of us throughout the country, the eyewitness identification has been proven wrong 78% of the time. 78%. That's a scary number. Okay. Um, Snitch testimony, which in my opinion should be completely banned. Four states have banned it altogether as a matter of fact. But these people are, these snitches are, they are professional liars. Okay, that's how they, that's that's giving them a compliment. And another thing that really bugs me, and it'll bug me to the day I die, is the issue of government immunity. Okay, right. We're not going to get into government immunity right now, but yes, prosecutors, police, bad judges should be able to be prosecuted if they do what they did to the three of you, right? I agree. Okay, so we 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 need to fix that. Um, I agree a thousand percent. What I want to talk about is Bill's list. There are so many similarities. I want the three of you, raise your hand if you had a lousy criminal defense attorney. The worst of the worst, and I think, I think all of yours have got disbarred or sanctioned or grieved after your trials, correct? I mean, it, it, was, it was abhorrent. How about aggressive prosecuting attorneys which ones of you had aggressive prosecuting attorneys that lied that did everything they could do to get a conviction they had tunnel vision you could put on your hand for a sec um eyewitness errors that that is over 70 percent of convictions that are overturned who had eyewitness errors you had one you had one you didn't need one um Prosecutors often push experts who sound legitimate to a jury, but what they are testifying to isn't always backed up by science. Who here had bad forensic science? You definitely did. You didn't have DNA that was tested that was available. Well, what they did in my case, they did ABO blood type testing. That ruled me out. And if anyone knows anything about DNA, if the ABO blood type does not, doesn't match, it's impossible for the DNA to match. Who here had perjury during their trials? Perjury, you had perjury, you had perjury, which is one of the one of the big ones on on Bill's hip parade. Official misconduct is when people in power flat out lie and cheat to lock up innocent people. They often hide evidence that shows that the suspect may not have been involved in the crime. They don't turn it over. It's called a Brady violation. Who experienced that in their case? You and you and Julie, in a sense. Unbelievable. Now, what I want to talk about now, you know, we've done six or seven um, wrongful exonerees uh, interviews. And, and the thing that um, amazes me is, is the perception of how bitter you all should be and angry about what happened to you, spending dozens of years in prison combined, all of you. 
but you have found the spirit to work hard and help others who are left behind in these, in these exact situations. You've started nonprofits. Um, you've been vocal about injustice. You lecture, you help pass laws. So I want you to all tell me, Julie, I'm going to start with you. Why, why do you feel the way do you do? How do you keep a positive attitude and why are you trying to help others? Oh, well, it's simply by the grace of God, uh, you know, throughout the whole ordeal, I always relied on my faith uh, to keep me moving forward. Um, after everything was said and done, you know, you have to look at life realistically. You can't live in the past. You can't harbor on things. You you have to move forward and you have to find things that that make you feel good. I like volunteering. That makes me feel good, giving back, you know, so. Um, That's great. Yeah. Aaron, what about you? Um, one thing about me is I had to say, like, during um, my prison, being in prison, and going through some of the stuff that we went through and we seen in there, and it's just like, after so long, man, I just submitted, man, because I realized that I was either in a fight or die situation. And you can't just um, put your life on the line and not expect to die. So I became at peace uh, with myself and everything around me, man. And I just was like, whatever God will is, it's will. And his will still working in my life. Um, you see, because of all the stuff that's going on with um, exoneration, reentry, you see we've been very successful in getting our word out there and everything. And it's just like we got a lot more help and we got a lot of other people that's doing beautiful things. Um, and I really think that it's therapeutic um, when you help others that have been through the same situation that you've been through. Kenny, what about you? You, you, are, you? you travel the country. You have pictures with every famous person uh, dealing with all this stuff. You know, how, and I know you, you had a very, um, your faith was very strong. Tell me how you maintained that and tell me why you do what you do now. Well, my faith has always been strong. I'm, I'm sure Julie's the same way. And all those years I was in prison, I would pray every day the good Lord would bring the truth to light. Mm -hmm. You know, I would dedicate the rest of my life to helping people that were in the same position as I was or any exoneree. And I've been doing it now, this, June, this coming June will be 18 years. And now I'll never break that promise that I made to the good Lord, never. And I do, I do what I do because what happened to me or to any exoneree should not happen to any human being. And there are ways to prevent them, those situations from happening. And I'm going to work to the day I die to make sure we get there. And, and, and you know, if people tune into episodes 40 and 5 and 50, they're going to learn about the laws that you help pass here in Michigan and all the good work that you're doing. And, and it's amazing. Um, a key to the future in this fight for justice is awareness, education, breaking down the stigma associated with being an exoneree. Julie, tell me about how your um, family and friends and even strangers treated you after you got released from prison. Um, well, uh, I had I had I had I had a good support group uh, throughout. Um, though, what was most painful though is when. After every after my second trial and 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 the dust settled, uh, I was very 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 close with 
all of my nephews and nieces. And um, unfortunately, they outgrew me while I was away. And that's the only way I can put it. You know, they went from, you know, being, uh, you know, pre-teenagers to uh, young adults starting lives of their own. And I mean, I could remember when I was 19, you'd have to pay me to get on the phone with my grandfather to wish him a happy birthday. So, you know, (laughs) unfortunately, that's just the way it is. Um, So, uh, uh, how's your relationship with your family? Do you have a relationship with your sister? Um, no. Yes, 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 yes. My my younger sister, yes, she's she's very active in in uh, in my life, and she she greatly aids and assists me uh, with uh, caring for my elderly father. Unfortunately, we lost uh, our mother two weeks after I was released wow. uh, through a stroke. So, is this the sister who who had Philip? Mm-hmm. So you guys yes. are still close. And do you have an update on Philip? No, I don't. No, I don't. I I don't have any. I don't have any. Uh, any any connections. Does with Does your sister have a connection with him? No. Okay. No, that's that's by way of uh, the 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 decision of the adoptive family. Okay. Aaron, how did your family and friends treat you and even strangers when you got released? Um, how they treat they treated me real good. They was glad I was home. And doing what I was doing, you know, I immediately started working on Innocence Maintained when I came home. So, you know, they was real positive Good. about that. That's fabulous. Kenny, same question for you. Um, I had a problem with my brother, Tommy. Uh, he didn't, uh, Tommy was a heavy drinker. He didn't, uh, he didn't think I was, he thought I committed a crime. And um, I had, didn't have an opportunity to talk to him since, you know, since I went home. He passed away about a year after I came home. Um, it affected my dad. My dad passed away, as you know, when I was still in prison. But, uh, you know, what? being accused of a rape, like there was a couple of times I, I didn't want to go around people that I didn't know, especially women. And, um, you know, when people found out who I was that I was in for rape, it was, I felt like I was walking around with a scarlet letter. Sure. And that, that, dis- that didn't go away until the actual rapist was, was caught. Bill, I want to ask you, how do we keep the pressure up on those in the justice system to not continue their fight to put innocent people away and to start helping free the innocent? Um, At this stage in the country, sister, we have a serious problem because at one point you might be able to get everyone elected to a legislature to sit around a table, listen to suggestions and walk down a road of some reasonable compromise, reasonable changes. It, I'm sorry, Mike, I don't think it's going to happen now. I, I think the lunatic in the White House for, for, for four years, his year before and his continued effect on this population, means that not enough people of reason and open-minded and open hearts will sit at a table and make changes in laws. I, <clears throat> I just need to remind everybody that what happens in the criminal justice system is essentially a wonderfully written set of laws and rules and processes and procedures. But we forget that people administer those laws. People have human failures. People do things that they're not supposed to do under law or even in an ethical or moral practice. 
I really don't know where we start, Mike, but everybody should know that, yes, not only do wrongful convictions happen, but they can be prevented. And yes, if somebody is telling you and insisting from the very beginning at trial or charges that they didn't do it, every single friend that's possible needs to step up and listen and then try to help before the conviction takes place. Amen. You think, you know, you would think that all of the news that's being made about the wrongful convictions and the integrity units and people getting out and podcasts like this who have three million eyeballs on them, that, that people will start getting the message that if you're a juror, if you're a witness to something, you know, don't call out somebody if you're not 100% sure. Don't, if you're a juror, you know, be skeptical. Ask questions. Know that just because the prosecutor or the cops say something doesn't mean it's always true. These types of things you would hope that people would be getting fair trials. And, and um, that's my hope. Uh, my hope is that if, if there you know, people out there who have said things to the police that aren't true, that after hearing stories like the three of yours, that they will come forward and say, you know what, I, I might have made a mistake. And, and I know that takes courage. And um, I encourage people to um, gather that courage because you have beautiful souls here who are sitting in prison for crimes they didn't commit, thousands of people most likely around this country that need, need the truth to be told. And, you know, I want to thank you all again for being here. I want to thank you for sharing your stories because I know it's not easy sharing the stories. I know it's not easy. And I want to tell the three of you that after hearing your stories and learning from Bill and watching the movies and reading your books that the Mike Morse Law Firm has decided to put, lack of a better word, our money where our mouth is, our energy where our mouth is. And we have taken on a case of a man that I believe did not get a fair trial on a shaken baby syndrome case who's sitting in prison for life on a crime that, you know, while I was not in the home when this poor baby was hurt, I do not think he had a fair trial. He had a terrible defense attorney. There was not one expert witness called against eight expert witnesses by the state. And I am working hard with a team of lawyers here at the Mike Morse Law Firm to get this man a new trial. And this is probably one of the hardest things that my firm has ever done. I am doing it because of you three. You have encouraged me uh, throughout it. Bill, you have helped me and we've had several conversations about taking cases like this. And because this man did not have the quality attorney that he should have had, we are gonna fight as hard as we know how to get this man a new trial. We will share more details in the coming months. Um, we are in the midst of it right now, getting the evidence, talking to experts, putting together a brief. Um, I'm nervous about it. Um, this is, you know, you get one shot. You get one shot at a 6,500 motion, as you guys all know. And um, I'm um, hopeful. I'm hopeful. And I just, I just uh, wanted you guys to hear it first. Well, good Mike, luck to you, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> Mike, God bless you. And um, I wish that there were more attorneys like you that would take the time to help. You, you see a wrong, you try to right it. I think that's what all, all of us do. And the bottom line is all, we, all anybody ever wants when it comes to the justice system is the truth. 
So I take my hat off to you, and I, I commend you. May God bless you. Thank you. Uh, Mike, I just want to say one thing, man. I really respect you for doing that because when I was in prison, the only thing I wanted was when I wrote for somebody to pick up my case and help me. And it never happened. I had to win an attorney at the federal level. So that's real commendable, man. And it's a lot of work, but I know you can do it. You know, Aaron, it wouldn't happen had you not come on my show. And it wouldn't happen had you guys not introduced me to Dave Moran up at the Innocence Clinic and had we not gone up to Zingerman's and had lunch that day. So lots of things happened. And it wouldn't happen if Kevin Dietz, my good friend, you know, didn't suggest we do doing these episodes on open mic. So, you know, it's a, it, it was a lot getting here. You know, I feel emotional about it. I'm excited about it. I'm nervous about it. Um, I can't believe that we've done 100 episodes. I'm going to have you guys back for our 200th, 200th episode if uh, we're, we're still around. Um, we have gifts for you all that we're going to give to you. We're going to take a cut. We're going to, I'm going to hopefully have you all put them on. We'll come back and shoot uh, us in our new swag and our new gifts. And uh, thanks again for being here. Our pleasure, Thank Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Screw got you a little gift for the 100th episode. Oh. We're just going to open it up on camera. Okay. Oh. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I have not seen this. This is a surprise. All right, I'll get you a picture, Aaron. Look at that. Is that what I look like? No, we, we tried our best. <laughs> no, that looks good. You pulled it off. That's awesome. Thanks, Rocky. We look forward to spending the next 100 episodes with you, and you are part of this. We need you to comment. We need you to tell us what you want to hear, what you don't want to hear, what you like and don't like. Don't be afraid to write in. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you soon.